Disability inclusion can seem like a mountain to climb, especially when you have no starting point. Knowing where to start can be the toughest part of it all. It's like staring at a blank piece of paper. Until you have something to jump off from, it's quite confusing. I have created a series of complimentary downloads that will help you get off the starting block. Understand the basics of the social model of disability or present a business case for disability inclusion within your business. To receive this and much more, visit celebratingdisability.co.uk and click the download link on the footer to receive a series of six helpful downloads to start you on the road to disability inclusion within your business. Hi everyone and welcome to another edition of Part of Me podcast. I am joined by yet another interviewee today. Um, So we are just going to introduce him and he will introduce himself and tell you about his experiences. So hello interviewee. Hello. How are you? Uh, My name is Dennis Kennedy. Um, My disability is from a traumatic brain injury as a result of a road traffic accident in 1986. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. So, so how has that, um, how has that left you disabled? How are you impaired by that? I'm impaired from the left side of the body, uh, pretty much the arm and the leg. And um, when I was diagnosed, my parents were told that I actually had cerebral palsy. Now that's okay. not the case, um, cause cerebral palsy results in Lack of action, lack, lack of oxygen to the brain, and you can only get it until the age of five. So it was a traumatic brain injury, where it's very similar symptoms to cerebral palsy being on the left hand side of the body. Mm. And also, cerebral palsy usually gets either during childbirth or the very few month, few months afterwards. So it'd be very difficult to get it as a result of an injury, wouldn't it? It would, but you can, it can happen up until the age of five. Okay. Um, in rare circumstances. Okay. But, um, it's similar, so I think at the time the doctors just put a term on it. So. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about how your disability affects you a bit later in the podcast, but I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit more about what you do and um, how you got to what you do today. Well, I'm a... Uh, I'm a social care worker at present. I'm okay. looking to become a, a life coach. I'm actually trying to be a life coach, particularly in the area of disability. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, and how I got there is I, I went, I had a lot, of, I was actually trying to be a sound engineer. So I, I, I always done things in my life that uh, the odds were stacked against me. Mm-hmm. I, always, I always done them anyway, like a stone engineer. You need two arms and two legs for that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So uh, I, I met I met considerable, considerable uh, social barriers trying to get employment in that area. Um, so I went back to college and I done a degree in psychology and I went on to do a master's in disability. Okay, brilliant. Um, now I'm doing a now I'm doing a diploma in life coaching. So I'm gonna combine all the three, my degree, my master's degree, my you know, qualification in life coaching. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's quite, you know, as a sound engineer, I mean, you know, I can relate a little bit. I trained as an actress and everybody told me that I wasn't able to be an actress due to the fact that I was disabled. Um, do you find that you didn't continue with your sound engineering due to perceptions or was it something that well, you were physically unable to do? Well, it's not, uh, I was never given a chance to do mm. it really. Um, so... It's not that I wasn't able to do it, I wasn't even a chance. But right. I did work, I did work in a number of different radio stations, um, kind of in, on a community level. So, you know, when I got on, I got on fine, you know? Yeah. So, um, I did kind of work in a professional capacity for a community radio station, and that was what kind of drew me to working with communities and with people with disabilities and in radio. Because I used to train these people to develop their own community project. Okay, brilliant. Okay, so tell me a bit more about the social work you do now. Do you work with disabled people themselves or do you work with everyone? I work, well, mainly with people with disabilities and that would be more the intellectual side of side of things. Um, yeah, I work for St. John and God's mostly. Mm -hmm. I, do, I do work with young people also in, uh, in uh, Tulsa. Um, that's, a, that's the organization in Ireland for protecting children, safeguarding children. Okay. Uh, okay. Brilliant. Yeah, excellent. Brilliant. So, I mean, this, this is one of the questions we talked about, so I don't mind. Um, I hope you don't mind me asking. Um, I noticed your terminology is slightly different to mine when it comes to disabled person and person with a disability. Do you mind just talking a little bit about what your kind of um, ethos is and why you use the term um, person with disability rather than disabled person? Um, because this oh, well, seems to be yeah, a subject that people are really interested in. Do you use uh, people with disabilities? Okay. Uh, sorry, that, that was my slip of tongue there. Sorry. No, no, no. That's fine. So, why do you why do you choose the term people with disabilities? Well, because it's more the academic term. Um, in my masters, it's okay. just the way. It's just under um, under any legislation and under any uh, policy in regard to disability. That's the terminology that is used. Okay. Okay. I did work in an organisation as part of my Disability Federation of Ireland. Mm -hmm. As part of my college work, um, I worked for them, and that was the terminology that they that was used, and it it seems to be more kind of a politically correct um, version, okay. version of that. Okay, interesting, interesting. Um, it's it, it's a very interesting topic when I work with companies, and I'm sure you do too. When I come across people or I work with businesses, um, a lot of their questions are about language, and a lot of what stops people from um, in companies from um, engaging with disabled people or stopping them from feeling confident when engaging with disabled people um, is knowing what terminology to use. So it's interesting to get different people's perspective on why they use different terms. So thank you very much for that. Um, so we're going to move on to just your life at the moment as a disabled person or a person with a disability, if you don't mind. Um, so could you tell us about three challenges you face, perhaps in the workplace or in your life, due to your disability, and explain to us a little bit about each? Uh, well, the workplace is a big one because I actually um, I done I done a, a medication. Um, I was on medication course the other day and um, because I wasn't able to kind of properly 
work with two hands. Mm-hmm. I wasn't able to actually pass the course. <laughs> but my my um it does it does uh especially in the interview process, it does um it does have the extra burden of learning the uh, learning the about the company and learning about the role, but you actually have to sell the disability. I find that you can't just sell yourself, you have to sell the disability because they're thinking about that they are thinking about it in the interview, so why not talk about it, you know? Sue, so, um, can you just elaborate a little bit about that? When you say sell the disability, what do you mean? With disabilities, are, are like less inclined to. They're more. They're less inclined to leave a role once they get a role. Yeah. They bring education. They bring persistence because they have to work. They have to work harder than anyone else. I, I have to work extra harder. Yourself, probably. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Than anyone else to achieve what you've achieved. So you're bringing that kind of dedication and that kind of persistence and no, a lot of people probably wouldn't wouldn't have on the same level um, in that sense so you're bringing a lot of skills and uh, yeah, you're less likely to leave a role yeah and it particularly with people people don't understand people with um, people with intellectual disabilities I mean research shows that productivity is more positive is you know the productivity is more um, is higher because these people just are dedicated to their work and are less likely to call in sick they're less likely to slack off you know not saying that everyone does but there's less of a chance so companies need to be aware that there's so much benefits to hiring people with not just physical disabilities but intellectual Absolutely. So when you say sell your disability, you're talking about selling the benefits of having a disabled person in the workplace. Yeah, and I think it's like the reasons reasons why employers may not may be reluctant to hire somebody with a disability is the lack of disability awareness training or the fear of the unknown consequences and the lack of knowledge about how to accommodate people with disabilities. And then there's the fear that a person with a disability will not be able to do the work the adequate productivity and then there's the lack of information about the support available to employers. So I, I think it's all I think it's all about um it's all about disability awareness over you know absolutely people back. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I couldn't agree with, more with you, actually. Um, all, the, all those things that you mentioned about people worrying about what might happen and not knowing about the resources that are available and the support that's available to them can get in the way of seeing what a productive member of staff, a disabled person, can be in the workplace. Yeah. So you, you, sorry, my apologies, Karen. When you think about it, we, we have in Ireland, in the UK, it's probably similar, but in Ireland we have the Employment Equality Act 1998-2004. Mm-hmm. We have the, the Act 2005, which a lot of legislation came from. But these acts are very well and good. They, they, state that, they state that a person cannot be discriminated against due to their disability. Uh, and now somebody told me that they cannot, they cannot discriminate against it because of that. And I said, I said to that person, of course they can. Of course they can. And there's no law to say they can't. They mm-hmm. can discriminate against you if you, they don't like your haircut. Mm-hmm. So why, why couldn't they discriminate against you for having a disability? They just can't directly discriminate against you. Absolutely. But it does exist. And yeah. it, in my view, and probably yourself the same, the way around that is 
not legislation. Legislation is all very well and good, but it's disability awareness thing. It's di being aware the sports available and the, the things that a disabled person can bring to workplace. I completely agree with you. I completely agree. So if you were going to offer advice to disabled to disabled employees who are going to be working in the workplace, um, who might be looking for a job or whoever who might actually already be in the workplace, what do you think your advice would be? Well, a lot a lot of people a lot of people fear um and this question comes up a lot on my podcast and probably yours. People fear that they, they have to disclose when to disclose their disability to an employer. Mm -hmm. Now, just just to just to make clear, um, and despite what companies or organisations say, that you're under no obligation at all to to uh, to, to disclose the um, disability. Yeah, you're under no obligation at all, unless. The, the job requires the use of two hands or two legs. You're under no obligation to disclose that information. Despite what it says on the application form, you're under no obligation because that puts you at a, at a distinct disadvantage. And now the only, the, only time, the only time you are obliged is maybe if you need reasonable accommodation. And that is the employers must take reasonable steps to accommodate the needs of employees with disabilities. Mm -hmm. And that is only in your best interest. You're not even, you're not even, um, you're under no obligation even to disclose it then. It's just in your best interest. So people, this is a potential barrier. People are worrying about what employers might feel. And then going into the interview situation, it's the, it's the extra pressure of, of learning, of, trying to sell your disability along with trying to sell yourself as an employee. So, so would you advise disabled employees if, if, I mean, some disabilities you can't hide, for example, mine is a very physical disability um, and your disability is a quite physical disability and so we walk into the room, it's very obvious that we're disabled. But would you advise people with hidden disabilities not to disclose or would you just advise them no. to do what they feel is right? Yeah, I don't, I don't advise at all. I'd say, um, I'd say if it feels right for you, do it. Okay. All I'm saying is they're under no legal obligation to do so. Yeah, okay, I cool. What, I don't know what it's like in the UK, but here in Ireland, it's you're under no obligation to uh, disclose that information. Yep, no, it's exactly the same in the UK as well. And as you say, you know, it might be helpful if, if there's any adjustments you need or if you feel as though by disclosing your disability, it will help in some way, like it will help your um, manager to understand and to empathise with the support you need. But as you say, that you're under no obligation at any time to disclose a disability, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, what advice would you offer managers who are managing disabled people in the workplace? Well, I would say to to just become more disability aware, to increase the level of understanding. Okay. Because what 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 doesn't what doesn't what we don't understand scares us. Scares us. You know, it's it's just it's all about training. You know, it, if if the managers feel the need to seek any uh, information about any government supports that's available to them because there's, there's an awful lot of yeah. government supports, reasonable accommodation kind of grants that are available. Yeah, uh, absolutely. To accommodate these people with disabilities. 
um, these are all available, and, and maybe employers aren't aware of of this, of these kind of um, grants. And just to familiarise yourself and become more aware, definitely. But that's the key thing is become more aware and educate yourself with the likes of yourself who provides uh, this, this awareness training, and um, just an organisation who would provide that. And I'd say the same for your fellow employees, uh, because again, what 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 you don't know scares you. What we don't understand scares us. That's very, very true. And so, you know, just on the topic of training, would you advise people to go for any type of training or, or specific training? Well, somebody who specialised in the area of, who provides this kind of training. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, just this builds the awareness of training. Or, okay. You know, perceptions of how you treat people with disabilities. Brilliant. Yeah. Excellent. So at the moment, we also talk on this podcast about experiences as a consumer and what the barriers to um, buying goods and services are for disabled people. So do you mind telling us that um, from your um, from your experience as a disabled consumer buying a good or a service, um, what would you say was your biggest barrier? I suppose just, um, again, it's attitudinal barriers, it's social barriers of how the person selling you the product perceives their perceptions towards you handling the product. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how might, how might come back on them? Are they, they might be worried about any legal obligations if this person, if this person fails to be able to injure themselves in one way, am I going to, Get, uh, am I gonna have to face the legal ramifications? So that can be a significant barrier that people can face um, when when trying to buy a service. Now, fortunately for me, I haven't faced any barriers, but I do know from research uh, that people can face these problems. Mm. People in the past have talked about things from um, barriers to buying things digitally online, um, so problems with accessing websites, um, to actually when you go into a physical store, being able to get around the store because there's too many rails of clothing and too many things on the floor um, there. Um, other people, somebody else last year, Roland, talked about the fact that he's got dyspraxia, and so if the signage isn't right, he struggles to find his way because um, dyspraxia he he um, he struggles with directions and coordination. So there, are there are those any of the impair, any of the barriers? Sorry, that you personally can relate to. Not in a sense uh, physical barriers, but more so the, the definitely the social barriers. Yeah, that's involved uh, due to due to the society. Okay. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, and so, what would you suggest to solve these barriers? Um, well, it's all about uh, it's about environmental design. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about environmental design. I think certainly Ireland, I don't know the UK, but we've an awful long way to come in terms of universal design for people with disabilities. Yeah. Can you give us an example? Of a poorly, um, well, in Ireland, I, in Ireland we have a lot of. Um, I'm not talking about 
shops now, but we have a, a wheelchair access is very limited because of uh, poor, poor, poor road design, path design. Um, kind of crossing the street, a person might have to go 100 yards out of their way to, to just cross the street. Right, okay. Um, it, it might be the same in shops, the way elevators might be out of, they might be out of, um, that'd be not working, out of order. Yeah. Including the, the elevators that do lift up the, the kind of manual ones, um, I don't have them in the UK. You kind of open them and they, you now these doors open. If a person is to open the door out, it's very hard for a person in a wheelchair to kind of open the door without the door crashing into them. Yeah, no, I yeah. If they're to swing the door left, they can't go right. They can't move to the right in order to swing it left. Yeah. So it's just maybe design and yeah. kind of having the staff there to, like a lot of these, a lot of train stations, um, they don't have the, they don't have the, the manpower even to deal with the deal with putting ramps down. Yeah. And it, instead, like the the accommodation isn't built into the isn't built into the train. There's no ramp between the train and the platform. Mm-hmm. There's a big gap between the train and the platform. Yeah. So, in order for you to get off the train, you need another human being to put down a, a ramp for you. Which is totally kind of, uh, you know, it's outrageous really because it's not really accessibility at the end of the day. You need a man there, that's, you have to ring 24 hours in advance to make sure there's somebody there, you know, so these are all significant barriers. I completely agree with you and I can relate to you and, and going back to your earlier points about the manual lifts, that's exactly what I call them as well, manual lifts, lifts that for people that don't know that you have to hold your finger down to get it up to the top on the bottom um, and they're quite often outside of old buildings or listed buildings as well that can't actually change the look of the building so they're plonked yeah. onto the corner um, and they're completely inaccessible. I always find them quite ironic because you have to be able-bodied to be able to open them as you say in the first place um yeah. which if you need to use a lift for that reason um you know you're not able-bodied so you know it's quite ironic and also you know i can completely relate to what you're saying about the trains as well um absolutely the, we need to have people um helping us if we're, we're in a wheelchair to get on and off the trains and quite often um the ramps are there and the support's there but the attitude's not there um, so, as you say, you have to book 24 hours in advance, but I don't know about you, but I don't always know where I'm going 24 hours in advance. That's true. And if I've been delivering training, I'm not going to guarantee that I'm going to get on the train that I booked because maybe um, a conversation has come up at the, as a result of what I've delivered that people want to talk about. And actually, I don't want to leave a client to get on a train. Yeah. Um, and so I completely, you know, it's a different country, but the the problems are still the same. Yeah, yeah. Like my thesis in my my, my primary degree was on uh, social stigma as perceived by people with physical disabilities in the area of social inclusion. Yeah. And I found that a lot, of, like a lot of people, that they they won't if they have to go somewhere and they have they join a club. If there's about a hundred barriers between their house and the club, that'll that 
that can easily put them off. Um, Absolutely. And you know, this can lead to mental health issues. It can, you know, can lead to uh, being excluded, being you know socially socially excluded and it can lead to a lot of mental health problems yeah so i mean all these barriers um are for are are in the way for disabled people kind of being active members of society in their own right um as a non-disabled person i'm sure there's some people listening that think well that doesn't really relate to me so it doesn't you know not that it doesn't matter but i don't see what i can do about it so can you explain why um it's important you know why it does relate to non-disabled people yeah i mean it's very hard to understand if you're not disabled right i think once once it's kind of spelled out yeah and once it's you become aware of it i think uh, i just think um it can really open your eyes so is there anything else you would like people to know uh no just like disability being disability aware and just um putting yourself in the shoes of the person with disability. Mm-hmm. I mean, if a person if a person has to enter a shopping centre and the, the lift isn't working, which is mostly the case, they might have to go a mile, like I know a place where I live, and you have to go a good 200 yards around the corner and up a hill and, and back in the back street to get into the back entrance if the lift isn't working. Yeah. So between... Other than the social barriers or the physical barriers, there could be between those between where they are and where they have to get to. There could be there could be fifteen barriers to get to that place that people don't understand. Yeah. Like to get to get into the lift, there might be a, there might be a hill, and the person with the wheelchair might have to you know it's it's very hard to push yourself, and they might be having some problems. So that could be a significant barrier. They might yeah. be they might be aware of people watching them. They might be aware of other physical, other kind of limitations that might affect them. Um, so there could be for every barrier there is about ten barriers for every one barrier yeah. that people that the average public may see. Well, that's a barrier. Well, to the person with disability, there's probably ten barriers in the way before they get to that barrier. Yeah, no, I could, I could have said it better myself. Um, thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed, this has been such an interesting podcast. I've really enjoyed listening to you. Um, and a lot of the things that you've said, I, I kind of know myself, but, you know, you're coming at it from a different perspective as well, which is really interesting. So I've definitely learned something as well. And I, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, I hope the listeners have too. So thank you very much. I, I hope so, because um, it's, it's a... Uh like I said, if people if people are aware, which things might be very simple, and once somebody once somebody tells you, and you're gone, how did I not know that before? Yeah, I think a lot of people can learn from this. Yeah, um, I completely just be more agree. aware. Just be more aware of the benefits that people with disabilities can bring, and say, look, they had to work extra hard. Yeah, extra hard to achieve where they are today. Yeah, and to embrace them. Brilliant. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, And, yeah, we'll see you soon. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you again for everybody for listening once again to the Part of Me podcast. I hope you found it helpful again this month.
Next month, we will be joined by Daniel, who has autism and talking about his experiences of being a poet and having um, experiences in the workplace. We are looking for new interviewees to be interviewed on the Part of Me podcast. So if you or anyone you know would be interested in sharing their views and experiences of the workplace as a disabled person, please do get in touch. And until next time, I will see you next month. Thank you very much. Bye. Come along to a networking event with a difference. The event is aptly named How to Network, a Diverse Perspective. Deaf, blind, anxious, speech impaired or a wheelchair user, navigating a networking environment can be extra tricky with a disability or a mental health condition. Hear from incredible people who face barriers when networking and how they successfully strategize around them. Build your own techniques and have some fun. Learn to work a room. The event will be held at the WeWork space at the fully accessible King's Place, London on Thursday 9th May at 6.30pm. Everyone is welcome. Find out more in the link attached to this podcast by searching how to network on Eventbrite or emailing inclusion at sarahburrell.co.uk. Networking is an art. It's time to get creative.